You're listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, my name is Octavio Fernandez y Mostajo. I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Today, we had a conversation about Christian Zionism Mm-mm. with Don Lewis. So Don is a professor of church history here at Regent. Uh, and he's written a book uh, called The Origins of Christian Zionism, Evangelical Support for a Jewish Homeland. Mm. And now he's uh, working on sort of a survey of Christian Zionism that's coming out in the next year or so. Mm. So we had um, a conversation with him about really the history of this uh. movement. Um, and I think hopefully what you, what you, the sense you get is uh, that understanding the history of something helps you understand why things are the way they are yes. just now. So it's dense. There's lots of kind of moving parts to this conversation and lots of factors that he's talking about. But, um, yeah, it gives you a good sense of what's happened and where yeah. we are now. We talked about Christian Zionism. And actually, a question for you. If you support Israel as a state, does that make you a Christian Zionist? Are you a Christian Zionist? Listen in. Don, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to be talking with you both. Good to have you. Thanks for agreeing to talk to us today about this topic of Christian Zionism. Um, I'm wondering if you can start with a bit of a definition for us. What do we mean by Zionism? And then what do we mean by Christian Zionism? Uh, your first question, what is Zionism? Uh, it's a political movement which arose... Uh, in Eastern Europe in the late 19th century among the Jewish communities, and their intent was to establish a home for Jews in Palestine. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it eventually succeeded in 1948 in establishing the State of Israel mm-hmm. when Israel declared its independence. And uh, Zionism today is usually used to describe anybody who's strongly supportive of the State of Israel. Mm-hmm. And what about Christian Zionism? Uh, That is really difficult to define. (laughs) Historians aren't agreed as to what it means, and so the definition is really important. Mm. For me, the key thing is Christian Zionists believe that the Bible has promised the Jews a homeland in Palestine. Mm. And so, um, yeah, but even to saying that is not a definition that all historians would use. So I'm using it in a narrow sense to say mm-hmm. biblically motivated Christian support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. And so, and you're a historian, so you love studying things in the past, but why would you study that? Why would you spend so much time studying this? Like, what's the influence of, on Christian, of Christian Zionism on our world as it is right now? That's not hard to answer because it is becoming a major factor in global mm. politics. Um, there's a Jewish historian, Sev Chavitz, who wrote a book about 10 years ago arguing that American Christian Zionist support for Israel is more important than American Jewish support for Israel. Um, even Mike Pence, who's the U.S. Vice President, of course, uh-huh. was the chief lobbyist for Israel among Christians on Capitol Hill when he was a congressman from Indiana. And now, of course, he has a, a key role to play. Um, so Christian Zionism is very important in American support for Israel, but also it is growing very powerfully in Latin America and influencing Latin American government's political actions. Hmm. Uh, Guatemala followed up the U.S. in moving its uh, embassy to Jerusalem. Uh, Brazil recently made uh, 
noise about doing the same, but it hasn't mm. actually. It pulled back from it. But even in African capitals, Christian Zionism is uh, mm. quite a strong uh, political movement. So mm-hmm. it's having a major influence mm-hmm. uh, at the international level that a lot of people in North America are not aware of. Mm-hmm. And so I... I'm feeling like this is controversial. Um, and so how did you get drawn into this? Because uh, it can be, is there, is, is, have you got an axe to grind? Is there something that you kind of, you want everyone, I don't know, it's, it's controversial. So why are you interested in it? Well, that's, that's a fair question. I don't have an axe to grind, which probably <laughs> will disappoint a lot of people. Um, I really fell into studying this quite innocently. I started writing a book about 15 years ago in my field of study, which is British evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. And I was using three rubrics or uh, three themes. So Mm -hmm. I was looking at evangelicals Mm -hmm. in power, evangelicals in identity, and evangelicals in culture. And Mm -hmm. I was looking at those three things through the lens of one person, Lord Shaftesbury, who was Mm -hmm. the leading social reformer in Victorian Britain, but also the leading evangelical layperson. Mm. And I wrote a chapter on evangelicals and empire, uh, then I thought, oh, he was really interested in the Jews, so I'll write a chapter on his interest in the Jews. Right. Um, that chapter started to grow like topsy because I kept on coming up with new questions right. that were fascinating. Why is this happening? Why is that happening? What impact is this having? Mm. And when I got to 350 pages, I realized I didn't have a chapter. Yeah. I had you a had whole book. book. <laughs> So um, I don't have any axe to grind. As a historian, I'm trying to track this movement from its origins, which I see in the 16th century, up to today. Mm -hmm. How it's changed and morphed and developed like a a river flowing through history. Uh Mm -hmm. And as you say, it's then understanding that historical background that that helps us understand what's going on politically now. So there's there's just that value in understanding that story. Yeah. So, so you mentioned that Zionism started like in the 1880s. Yes. But when did Christian Zionism start? Um, the answer to that is complex because the term Christian Zionism is a 20th century term. It was first oh. used around 1900 in the New York Times. Uh, it only became common. Uh, you can use Google search mm now to track the use mm. of phrases or yeah, language right. and so if you look at the, you do the use the google uh, search you can see that it only really became popular in the 1980s so it's a very recent 80s. very recent yeah, yeah very recent term but the idea used yeah. to be called restorationism so the restoration oh. of the jewish people to uh to uh palestine um but as to how old the idea itself is, is one that's really contested by historians. Mm. Jerry McDermott, with whom I work on a, a committee uh, on dealing with other things, but he's the leading advocate of the idea that this goes right back to the early church. Mm. Um, I don't agree with my friend on this. Mm. I think it really begins in the 1520s, starting in the reform circles in, uh, in Switzerland, actually. Mm. And then it morphs and becomes mainstream in, Amer- in Puritanism in England right. in the 1600s, mm-hmm. and then in American Puritanism. Mm-hmm. Jonathan Edwards, yeah. the greatest American theologian, mm-hmm. uh, in, in writing in the early seven, the first half of the 18th century, uh-huh. so the 1700 to 1756, I think is his death. He was a strong Christian Zionist, but he represents this Puritan consensus that the Jews will eventually be returned to Zion. Mm-hmm. 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 
But surely these people argue that Christian Zionism is rooted in the Bible, right? So where exactly do they find support for this? Well, one can trace the belief right back to Genesis, where God promises Abraham the land and then repeats the promise to Moses. In fact, the land promise in the Old Testament is made a number of times. Mm. Uh, You'll also find in Genesis a a verse that the Christian Zionists are using all the time. Mm. Um, Whoever blesses you, I will bless, and he who curses you, I will curse. I've heard that a lot Uh, of times. (laughs) It's also in Jeremiah 31, it speaks of a Jewish return to Zion. So these are the passages that are most frequently Mm -hmm. uh, used in Christian Zionist circles. Mm -hmm. After the Jews were expelled from Palestine, or at least uh, from uh, Jerusalem by the Romans in the second century, uh, Jews continued to believe in a future return of the Jewish people to Mm -hmm. their homeland, uh, and the longing for the land is really central in Judaism. A longing for Mm -hmm. Zion Mm -hmm. has been nurtured in Jewish life over the centuries. Right. Uh, this longing for the land has been enshrined in the daily prayers of the Jews for centuries. Mm. Oh, yeah. And of course, uh, that, those longings go back to the Old Testament scriptures themselves. Uh, traditionally in Judaism, however, the idea of the return on the personal level was one that you might do as a pilgrimage to Jerusalem before you died. But the idea of a mass return of the people to Jerusalem was was prohibited. The rabbis have said for centuries that only the Messiah will bring us back to the land. And any attempt to bring the Jews back to the land is heresy, is against Jewish teaching. That's been the consensus for for a very long time until the 20th century. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. It's interesting now that Jewish settlers, some of the very strongly right-wing Jews in Israel are learning lessons from the Christian Zionists and making Uh, a biblical case, picking up the arguments that Christian Zionists have made for them, Um, citing places like uh, Deuteronomy, where it says, every place where your foot shall step will be yours, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the Euphrates rivers to the Mediterranean Sea, and then in Joshua 1, a similar promise. And these are being picked up now by religious Zionists uh-huh. in Israel, but they're learning them the whole argument from the Christian yeah. Zionists. Yeah, right. And so if the kind of 19th, 20th century Zionists were largely secularists, how did then Zionism become mainstream? I mean, you're saying that they're learning from the Christian Zionists in some ways, or they're adapting things, but how did it become mainstream then in the Jewish community? Well, it took a long time, mm. and the fight is not over because there are still, mm. especially among younger American Jews, a strong anti-Zionism. Right. So not all Jews are Zionists. Uh, Jews in the late 19th century who were Zionists were largely irreligious Jews. They were right. actually secular Marxists, atheistic Marxists. Oh, wow. So the original leaders of the Jewish movement were fed up with waiting for the Messiah, which traditional Judaism uh, had told them they had mm-hmm, to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was Marxist Zionists who were instrumental in making it happen. Uh, they were a long way from religious Jews or the Christian Zionists. Mm-hmm. And up to the 1945, probably the majority of the Jews in the world were not Zionists. Mm-hmm. The Jews who dominated American Jewry uh, up to that time were strongly anti-Zionists. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same is true in England. The elite of the English Jews were opposed to Zionism. And even in 1948, it's doubtful that the majority of the Jews throughout the world were Zionists. Uh, 
Mm. Many of them thought that the idea of Zionism was a dangerous idea. Right. Here you guys want us to go back to Zion. You want to put us in a new ghetto yeah. in the Middle East where we're going to be targets for our enemies. Mm. So this is, uh. is not... It, they felt this was an anti-Jewish thing, and uh, they didn't want to be part of it. Uh -huh. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But eventually Zionists succeeded in creating the state of Israel, right? And the question is how? Well... Um, Yeah, how? <laughs> they were, the, the Zionists themselves were very well organized and very uh -huh. persuasive, but the decisive event was the Holocaust. Uh, the wave mm -hmm. of sympathy for the Jews that arose throughout much of the Western world, right. once the horrors of what had happened at Auschwitz, mm -hmm. yeah, Belgen, uh, the other uh, concentration camps, uh, did much to change the heart of people towards the Zionist idea, mm -hmm. both on the part of Jews and of Christians. Mm -hmm. Uh, many people believe that Jews should have a place of refuge in light of the Holocaust, mm. and they were persuaded that pers uh, that establishing a Jewish homeland was the thing to do. Mm -hmm. mm. And, as I said, the, the Zionist organizers were brilliant strategists. Uh, they had a great deal of support from key international leaders, including uh -huh. uh, American President Harry Truman, who, within 24 hours, of the Declaration of Independence in May 1948 recognized the state of Israel. So that gave it a huge boost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's the short answer. And the long answer is? Well, the long answer <laughs> is what my two books are about. <laughs> yeah, In 350 brief, pages or whatever. Yeah, well, that was the first one. <laughs> this one's going to be about the same. The second one's going to be about the same length. In my first book, I tried to argue that the Jewish Zionists were greatly helped by this tradition in Christianity, in Protestantism especially, that grew up in the wake of the Reformation, that believed that the Jews would eventually be restored to Zion, mm -hmm. and that it was the responsibility of Protestant nations, especially England initially, uh -huh. to help the Jews return. Uh, this is behind the decision in the 1650s by the British government to invite the Jews to settle again in in England. The Jews had been mm. expelled mm -hmm. from England in 1290 by Edward I, just as they were expelled eventually from Spain and Portugal in 1492. Yeah. But the uh, the Puritans said, we want them back in England so that they can be converted and that we can help them return to Palestine. Right. My first book traced the enormous influence that this Christian Zionist impulse had on the British elite that made the decision in 1917 to uh, issue the, what is called the Balfour Declaration. Mm -hmm. uh, Balfour was the foreign minister who uh, made public the British government's commitment to create a Jewish homeland, not a Jewish state, but a homeland mm. in Palestine. And just within a few weeks of making that declaration, Palestine fell to the British uh, in the, the final stages of World War One. So the British... Uh, occupied the Middle East mm. and had the responsibility for Palestine. Mm -hmm. And so that the the Balfour Declaration you're saying is influenced by Christian Zionism, but were there so that was obviously a part of it. But there had to have been other things going on. Were there other sort of non-religious factors that were going on in the world at that point that that would have influenced that? Yes, uh, my argument is that this is an important factor that needs to be set aside or alongside other oh. factors yes. such as. Uh, economic, political, military, strategic organizations uh, mm -hmm. or arguments that were important in the British government mm -hmm. making this. But I, I think that 
one can make a strong case that the popular support for it in England came from Christian Zionism. Right. Um, and that's been neglected, you think, in people's interpretation of that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be somehow crazy to think that every Jew is a Zionist, right? Right. They're not. So, so what, what about them in, in all this that happened in the movement? And you have to appreciate that at the end of 1917, the British government was in a really tough spot. They thought they were going to lose World War I. The British mm. uh-huh. shipping was being sunk by U- uh, the, Brit- the German U-boats. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, Russia, in uh, the, the October Revolution of 1917, withdrew from fighting Germany. So a major ally withdrew from the war. So by November mm. 1917, the British were determined to do anything they could. And one thing they hoped they could do was to persuade Turkey or the Ottoman Empire to withdraw because they were allied with Germany. Mm-hmm. So if the British could manage to persuade the the Turks to withdraw from the war, that would mean that the British could then deploy their troops uh-huh. out of the Middle East against Germany. And the Americans who entered the war early in 1917 didn't actually have boots on the ground until late 1917. So the British were desperate. Mm-hmm. And in their desperation, they did several things. They promised Palestine to the Arabs mm-hmm. uh, if they would revolt against the Ottomans, to put pressure on the Ottomans. Mm-hmm. They secretly promised Palestine to the French oh, in a goodness. secret agreement that nobody knew about. They publicly promised uh. Palestine to the Jews in November 1917. Uh-huh. But we now know that in January 1918, two months after promising Palestine to the Jews, they were promising the Ottomans that if they withdrew from their support of Germany, they would give Palestine to the Ottomans. So they weren't being double-faced. They were being (laughs) four-faced. They promised the same Uh area to the Arabs, to the French, to the Jews, and to the Ottomans. They would do anything in order to get enough support to to defeat the Germans. And, of course, they eventually defeated the Germans. But part of that bargain was this public promise to the Jews, Uh which they were prepared to renege on. Uh, mm. s- secretly. Now, mm-hmm. the, it's only, that's only come out in the last few years mm. that we now know that the British uh. were really being devious in their their support for... Uh, yeah, right. That is crazy. <laughs> okay, so, so I'm guessing after the great triumph of, you know, the establishment of the State of Israel, I'm guessing Zionism became very popular or what about those Jews that weren't uh, Zionist and, uh, and I guess they all actually supported the Zionist movement after it, or how, how did that work? Well, many of them did. After the Holocaust, it became very difficult, even if you'd been on principle opposed to Zionism as a Jew, mm-hmm. to to maintain that position. So, uh, But there are still many ultra-Orthodox Jews, even mm-hmm. today in Israel, who believe that Israel is not the promised land of, because the Messiah has to give it, not the secular, uh, the secular Jews. Um, Oh, okay, for for some Jews, the the fact that the Messiah didn't give them the state of Israel means it's, it's not actually legitimate. Legitimate, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And it, what happened here was actually it required actually a revolution in Jewish theology. The, the rabbis had said for centuries only the Messiah would do this, and uh, now it's happened without the Messiah. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, so that aspect of the messianic hope 
in Judaism effectively died with the establishment of the state of Israel. It seems to me that this one of the greatest revolutions in Jewish theology uh-huh. happened, and few people seem to have noticed it. It's interesting, as I said, how some religious Jews are uh, still um, anti-Zionist, mm-hmm. but others are now spinning Jewish history to say that the Jews have always been supportive of the idea of a return. Mm. And it is true that many Jews have wanted to go to Palestine to die in the Holy Land, but that's different from the idea of the Jews returning en masse to Palestine. Uh Mm -hmm. The former, the idea of personal pilgrimage is allowed. The latter, mass return was forbidden. So there's been a a Mm. huge shift in Jewish theology, giving up on the idea of a personal Messiah who would return us uh-huh. to the land. Yeah, right. So, so most of most of them have left that idea. You think? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Zionism and Judaism are not the same thing. Mm. What really oh, yeah. surprised me is that the founders of the state of Israel, David Ben Gurion, the first president, Menachem Begin, later a president, mm. uh, Golda Meir, and others, were strong secularists. Their aim was to establish certainly a homeland for the Jews, but it wasn't meant to be a homeland for traditional Judaism. They were, in fact, atheists and wanted a secular Israel. Uh, Not only did they want a secular state, but they also wanted a state that would secularize religious Jews who came to Israel. So bring me your poor, benighted Uh. religious Jews from Eastern Europe and Russia and we will make them into good Enlightenment Jews who don't believe in traditional Judaism. And we'll do that through the Israeli school system and through the Israeli army. This will be the means of secularizing Jews. Make them good secular Jews like Mm. the founders. But unfortunately for the secularists like Ben-Gurion, Ben-Gurion himself made several concessions to the ultra-religious Jews Mm. in the early 1950s. Uh, one, he allowed them to have their own school system, and he also uh, gave the rabbis the right to uh, oversee marriage and the definition of who is a Jew. Mm-hmm. Um, they, in fact, became in charge of defining Jewish identity. It's common now for secular Jews not to be married in Israel because they don't want to be under the rabbi's authority. They'll often go to Cyprus to get married outside of the religious Uh and political structure of Mm -hmm. Israel Mm -hmm. in order that they will be outside of the religious jurisdiction of the the Orthodox. Mm -hmm. Another challenge for the secular Jews, like Ben-Gurion, who started Israel on the secular path, was that the Jewish immigrants into Israel, especially after the 1967 Six-Day War, uh, as the Arab countries emptied themselves of all Mm -hmm. the Jews living in Iraq, Iran, these countries where they lived for centuries, Mm -hmm. now after 1967 they had to flee. The poor Jews went to Israel, which was the bulk of them. The rich Jews went to the United States. They in their Arab countries had kept themselves together by practicing a very strict form or very strict forms of Judaism. So they were very devout. Uh, When they came to Israel, they strengthened the religious Jewish community in Israel. But what you see now in Israel, you've seen this in the most recent election, is the rise of religious parties in Israeli society Mm -hmm. who are having more and more influence in Israel today. 
uh, to such an extent that people in Israel are worried that secretly or quietly, even members of the armed forces, about a, a civil war in Israel. Mm. Not a war between Jews and, and Arabs. They're not worried about the Arabs, really, in terms of, uh-huh. of being a serious threat. The real threat is the possibility of violence breaking out between the religious mm-hmm. Jews and the strongly secular Jews. Mm. They live in different cultural worlds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have mm-hmm. different assumptions. And there's, there's tremendous uh, hatred, actually, between these mm. different groups. Uh-huh. This is not talked about very publicly, but uh, Israel today is deeply divided. And uh, as the religious Jews try to impose their strict view of the Sabbath uh-huh. on the whole, co- whole country, mm. um, this becomes more and more problematic. Mm-hmm. And so I'm getting the sense that uh, Christian Zionism is thought to be and can be quite controversial. Why, why is that? I'm getting a sense of it, but can you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah, there's several ways to answer that, I guess. Uh, I mean, it's certainly controversial in the political realm mm-hmm. because of its influence, especially people notice in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So if the American Christian Zionist lobby is as important or more important than the Jewish lobby, then that says a lot about mm. why it's controversial. It's also controversial because even within Christians, uh, many Christians question a lot of the basic premises of this Christian Zionist. So even within Christianity, it's pretty controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many Christians who believe that the land promises of the New Testament were conditional and make the point that the land promises in the Old Testament are never repeated in the New Testament. The the person who mm. is most effective, actually, in making this argument is Bruce Waltke, who used to mm. teach here at Regent. Uh-huh. Uh, Bruce is, I remember I had a Christian Zionist say to me two or three years ago, because uh, I was quoting Bruce, and he said, you know, when you quote Bruce, you're quoting the one th- figure, uh-huh. because he used to be professor at Dallas Seminary, which is a center of dispensational uh, premillennialism okay. mm. that is very strongly Christian Zionist and Bruce began to rethink his position while he was Dal- at Dallas and then when he came to region he changed his position uh-huh. mm. and he's he actually gave a lecture in summer school uh, about 12 years ago which has recently been published in Crux mm. on the land promises in the New Testament and his argument put very briefly is that where you would expect the land promises to be repeated in the mm. New Testament they're not so in Romans 3, Paul the rabbi says to Abraham and his posterity was promised, you would expect him to say ha'aretz, the, uh-huh. the Hebrew word for land. And instead, he says the universe. So he, the land promise is taken, but exploded and expanded uh-huh. in an enormous way so that it's not just a few square miles of, of sand in the Middle East, Rather, it's the whole universe is promised to the people of God. Mm -hmm. Or Jesus, when he quotes from the psalm, which says in the Old Testament, uh, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Mm -hmm. Jesus changes that and says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So it's not just a small piece of land that the people of God are promised, but these promises are 
exploded, expanded, universalized mm-hmm. in the New Testament. So yeah. that they, in a sense, relativize the Old Testament promises, and mm-hmm. and he argues that these are no longer operative. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's a very oh. controversial position amongst evangelicals. Totally. And that's why Bruce, having been the leading figure in academic circles uh-huh. advocating Christian Zionism, now is saying, well, no, that's not actually what the New Testament is saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. After the Holocaust in the 1940s, the idea of creating a Jewish homeland appealed to many Christians who I wouldn't call Christian Zionists. They were Christians who were Zionists, but they weren't Christian Zionists in the sense that they believed that the Bible had promised this. Uh, They really supported Israel out of a humanitarian concern to have a sanctuary for Jews, and this was the place where Mm -hmm. the Jews would be. but having said that, I think it's still true that most, certainly the most vocal advocates of Christian Zionism today are found among the ranks of the evangelicals, mm, yeah. and especially among the charismatics yeah. in the worldwide charismatic movement. That's one of the reasons why it's so strong in Latin and South America uh-huh. and in Africa. Mm-hmm, uh-huh. Because of the strength of the charismatic, yeah. yeah. Um, and so then often, I think in my mind, I see that I've heard people put um, Christian Zionism together with that kind of dispensational pre-millennialism kind of idea. And is there any truth in that, the connection between those two things? Dispensationalism remains very powerful in the United States. Uh, But I think, from my observation and other people's observation, it's losing its influence outside of the United States, especially Uh, in Europe and Latin and South America. Mm -hmm. Um, There are North American charismatics who are not dispensationalists. Uh, Pat Robertson of CBN is a post-tribulation rapturist. And Mike... Isn't that a great title? <laughs> what a phrase. <laughs> that Christ will come after, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. after the tribulation. Yeah. Uh, Mike post-tribulation Bickle. rapturist. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Bickle yeah. is uh, the head of... Uh, can- the, quite well known, mm. the House of Prayer, yeah. International yep. House of Prayer in Kansas yeah, City. Uh, he also is a... Uh, He's a he's a pre, he's a premillennialist, but he's not a dispensationalist. Right. So I think that dispensationalism is and remains powerful in the U.S., but is not as important as it is in uh, outside of the U.S. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it's only one of a number of different theologies that carried the the, the Christian Zionist vision forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So while dispensationalism has been influential particularly between, say, 1870 and 2010, I think its importance may be on the decline. Hmm. The great concern for the Jews was for their eventual return to Palestine. This became a key interest of the English Puritans. Mm -hmm. Uh, They passed on these interests to the Puritans in America. And even when America was formed in the 1770s, the belief was strongly that the forming of America as a nation America had been given a task, and that was that it was going to be America that would help the Jews return to England, not England. So Mm -hmm. right built into American Mm -hmm. national identity is a sense of obligation towards the Jews that that arose from its Protestant ethos and mentality. I actually remember a lot of arguments back in in Bolivia, my country, of, of the reason why the U.S. became so blessed was mainly because they helped the Jews. That was kind of the God bless them, mainly because of that, because they helped the Jews. Yeah, this is this is standard Protestant interpretation right? of history, <laughs> yeah. of providence. Uh, everything can be seen as to whether or not a nation blesses the Jews or, or curses uh-huh. the Jews. 
one problem with that argument, and this is an argument, this is a, a problem that Christian Zionists will acknowledge, uh-huh. is what do you do about Germany? I mean, Germany persecuted the Jews uh-huh. worse than any other nation on earth, but what is the most powerful economic power in Europe today? Uh-huh. It's Germany. Mm-hmm. So this idea of cursing Germany, now you can argue that you know, Germany was absolutely devastated by World War II, oh, yeah. but what nation today in, in Europe is mm. the leading nation? It's Germany. And this is a problem theologically for a number of the Christian scientists. And uh-huh. they, they try to deal with this and, and mm. uh, figure this out because that mm. example really doesn't fit the standard explanation. Yeah, straight counter-argument. Right? Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. And so, Don, just as we're finishing up here, just as you've you've delved into the depths of this of this topic, are there things that have sort of surprised you while you've been studying? Are there things that have... Yeah, new things that have come to light. Yeah, things that have surprised you or sparked your interest. Uh, there have been a lot of surprises, yeah. actually. <laughs> I was quite surprised by the fact that Israel and Judaism are very different things. And there are a lot of Jews today, yeah. mm-hmm. especially younger Jews in America, who are actually becoming quite anti-Zionist and are quite critical mm-hmm. of oh. Israel. I was also surprised to learn about the history of the Jews in Palestine between, say, 1900 and 1948. Um I hadn't realized the depth of anti-Jewish feeling among the Arabs back in the 1920s. Uh, from my work on the 19th century, it was really clear to me how badly the Jews of Palestine and other areas in the Ottoman Empire, mm. how badly they were treated uh, by the Ottomans. Reports of Christian missionaries in the 19th century are full, especially writing from Jerusalem, full of stories of mistreatment of mm. the Jews. But the resentment of the Arabs towards the Jews was a major problem for the British from the 1920s onwards. Of course, in 1922, the League of Nations enshrined the Balfour Declaration in the British Mandate. So the British ruled Palestine mm-hmm. as a protectorate or a mandate. Yeah. Uh, and they allowed, in the 1920s, Jews to emigrate to Palestine, which really angered the Arabs. Um, I was also surprised to learn about the story... <clears throat> of the Arab-Israeli War of 1948. Yeah. This actually began well before the Declaration of Independence in, huh. uh, in May 1948. And the story is not a pretty one. It's mm-hmm. not a pretty one on either side. There were massacres, Arab massacres of Jews and Jewish massacres of Arabs, mm-hmm. both before the war and after the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a group of historians today in Israel called the New Historians. The leading figure is Benny Morris. Mm -hmm. And they have detailed very carefully what actually happened. As historians, Uh they don't want to simply go along with what the textbooks of the Israeli school system say that make all the Jews out to be heroes. They want to say, what were the facts? What actually happened? What massacres happened? Mm -hmm. What massacres were Jews responsible for? Now, they aren't very popular in Israel today mm. for telling the truth. Uh, but the other thing that I was really surprised is they're also, these historians are not apologetic. Mm. Like they say, yeah, we did these terrible things, but we're not going to apologize for it. You know, you're making an omelet, you have to break some eggs. Uh-huh. This is what happened. We, we acknowledge this happened, but we're not going to be apologetic for it. Mm. Uh, we committed atrocities, and the people who did them were never really brought to justice. But that's the price of war. We're not going to apologize for what happened. That surprised me. Mm. Oh, yeah. Another surprise was to see the shift in the movement of Christian Zionism after 1900 from a base, a theological base in Reformed Calvinistic Protestantism to a shift to 
Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement eventually. Mm, so th- mm-hmm. the people who really carry the movement today are largely the charismatic Pentecostals. Very different theologically from the movement that fostered it for several centuries. Mm-hmm. So you, you yeah. see this working out a yeah. Protestant identity, again, centered around the Jews, but from a very different theological base. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that's really fascinating to me is the way in which Christian Zionism has taken off and just exploded in places like Brazil, other areas of Latin America. Mm-hmm. It's growing rapidly in parts of Africa and Asia. I'm going to a conference in Barcelona in July oh. where half the papers from sociologists of religion dealing with Christian Zionism, there's a seminar on Christian Zionism, uh-huh. half of them are focused on Brazil, in fact. Oh, really? Because they're so aware of the huge importance of Christian Zionism affecting uh, Brazilian politics. I think that, again, this comes back to this idea that the Jews are an identity mark marker for Christians. Andrew Walls talks about um, when people become Christians, they have a new adoptive identity. They've been adopted as children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they have to figure out what is their, uh-huh. what is their identity now, not only in terms of their own religious background, but now their new background yeah. of having new relig- religious and spiritual ancestors. Uh-huh. And so this idea of how do we relate to the Jews as yeah. a people, what role do the Jews still have? Do they have a role in in Christian thinking, or have they been completely superseded by the church? Mm. Uh, what about physical Israel? What about the land? Uh-huh. So all these issues are appropriated and drawn into this movement that tries to give these people a new sense of identity in the world. And it becomes, it becomes in a sense, par- you become part of a much larger community as a Christian Zionist. Uh-huh. I've been to the uh, Feast of Tabernacles celebration led by the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem, which is one of the major uh, Christian lobby groups. It uh, is very significant in Israel, and the Israeli government pays a lot of attention mm-hmm. to it. But every October during the Feast of Tabernacles, they have Christian Zionists from all over the world, several thousand. Uh, I was there two, two years ago to this celebration, and there were people from everywhere, from China, uh-huh. from Singapore, from Brazil, from all over Latin America, from North America. But it was really dominated by non-Western uh, mm. charismatics. Uh-huh. And there was this sense that this is our, our geographical home. Uh-huh. is not Rome as an evangelical. Uh-huh. It's Jerusalem. And we feel this deep affinity with the Jews because they mm. help us understand our own identity. So uh-huh. that's part of this. Is for, for Protestants, it's tying them into a worldwide fellowship that transcends the denomination, yeah. uh, culture, because they have a new spiritual identity that's rooted in these people. And a lot of these Christian Zionists may never have met a Jew, mm. but they, oh, feel, yeah. they feel like a deep affinity with them, like mm. they're our people in some way. And so this is this is part of the dynamic. It comes back to a Christian identity, uh-huh. Protestant identity formation. And you see, you understand how a secular Jew would feel so uncomfortable with that. Yes. Yeah. Like, you guys are appropriating my history f- to make sense of your own lives. Well, this is my life. I don't believe in God. I don't really believe in Israel. I mean, there are obviously still a lot of uh-huh. secular Jews who do, but a lot of younger, this is one of the things that uh, one of my uh, Jewish friends has said that he's quite alarmed by, and a number of of uh, American Jews are alarmed by that a lot of younger American Jews 
are really doubting this. This well, a lot of them don't believe, uh-huh. but they really doubt the significance of of Israel to their own lives. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. They don't want to go back and live there. Yeah. They're not supportive of Israeli politics. They're appalled by the recent election, re-election of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh-huh. and so there's a lot of dissonance there in the in the in the Jewish community globally about these issues and a lot of them are not appreciative of christian zionism because they feel like it's reinforcing things that they don't agree with Uh Mm -hmm. oh yeah total sense Mm -hmm. tom thanks very much for joining us when uh, when when do we expect your book to be out when can we pick up a copy probably another another year so okay gotta wait okay don thanks so much for your time sure thank Thank you so much it was so interesting great don thanks thanks for listening to the regent college podcast Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit regent.net. That's R-G-N-T dot net. <laughs>